Okay, so it looks like uh, we're going to go live here. Uh, welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics, where we talk Christianity and we seek to provide answers to questions for both Christians and non-Christians alike uh, for the questions you are asking. Today is really special to me. We've got Tim Morton on with us, and we're going to be debating the gap theory. He recently uh, wrote a book on the subject and is hoping to debunk my belief in the gap theory. So that's going to be today's show. If you will, stay tuned. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. The point is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, so yeah, welcome, welcome back again. That's our introduction. We'll head over here to the introduction and uh, get into a few preliminary items before we actually jump into uh, not only the topic for tonight, but introducing our guest, Tim Morton. Um, so a couple of things, guys. If if you think of a question, the gap theory is something that a lot of Christians are really um, talking about. They have uh, been talking about. Um, especially when it comes to evolution versus creation. Um, sometimes those topics come into the conversation itself. If you come up with a question and you want to leave it in a voicemail, uh, you can go into whatever podcasting platform that you're using and uh, just click the link in the description. It's literally labeled leave a voicemail. If you click that, you can leave me an audio voicemail. Just state your name and your question, and uh, we should be able to play it at the end if you do that. If you don't want to leave an, an audio voicemail, um, whatever platform you're watching it in, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, uh, Periscope, Twitter, um, or any other platform that it's playing on, you can type in the chat, and I should be able to see that message. Uh, but just make sure that you start it out with a question. That way I know when we get to the end that we've got a question um, that will be directed uh, whichever direction we need to direct it once we finish with our debate. And uh, you can also, guys, at the end of this, if you don't want it to be, um, if you don't want to uh, have your question aired in, in the live stream, you can always email me. And, uh, the email that you can reach me at is gibbsj1086 at gmail.com. And uh, just put in uh, whatever question that you've got. If you, if you want it to stay private, we'll keep it private. If you don't, we'll, we can use that and uh, put the question out there on, a, on a, an upcoming episode as well. Uh, so if you would, go ahead and help us share this content as well. Um, either share it on Facebook or retweet it on Twitter um, or you know start a watch party even. You can start a watch party in uh, any of the different Facebook groups uh, that you're in and just kind of share the stream and do it that way. So that'll help us get the word out there, let people know that we're live. 
Uh, one other aspect is uh, we we do have um, the listener supporting um, option available on any of the podcasting platforms as well. So if you want to be a supporter of this podcast, you are now able to do that. If you would like to contribute and help us pay different cost of what it you know uh, what it what it costs to put the equipment out and to, to do this thing, so you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, so that should be kind of the preliminary stuff. Um, as far as that goes, yeah. But if you wanted to donate, you can. It's in the description box of your podcasting platform, or you can go to Anchor.fm and uh, just type in "Talking Christianity" and it'll pull up my page. Uh, so you can click the donate button there, or leave a voicemail button there, as well. So uh, that is basically the introduction that we've got. I'm going to cut over here to Tim Morton's camera right now. He's got it on uh, the Bible Analyzer software. You should be able to see that. Uh, but you'll be able to hear his voice. So, uh, Tim Morton, thank you again. So it's, it's so good to have you on the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Are you there? Do I still have you? I can hear you clicking. Tim, are you there? Let's see here. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Okay, great. And I wasn't able to tell what was going on. I'm well, here right now. Good. We got you. So, hey, I was just saying uh, thanks again for coming on. Um, it's, I, you know, I, this topic is, it's a big topic. It's a broad topic. Um, but I think it'll be a good time. And I think by the end of it, um, you'll have enough information to make an informed decision about what you believe about the gap one way or the other. So, um, I do want to get into just a little bit, kind of give an introduction to who you are uh, as, a, as, a, as a person, as a web developer, as a, the Bible Analyzer software developer, and just um, how people can engage with some of the material that you have put out there. And I guess we can start by looking at the Bible Analyzer software itself, if you would like, since we've got that pulled up here. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and what you're doing um, with the different materials and software program that you've put out there. Okay, I'd be glad to. Yes, I've been a Christian since, well, about 1980, so that's going on almost 40 years ago. And I've always been interested in, you know, reading books. I read everything I could find when I first became a Christian back in 1980 and read a lot of material and, and became a Bible believer, King James Bible believer, about four years later in 1984. At first, I didn't Everything I read, those of y'all that have uh, read similar things, said that the King James Bible was full of errors. You know, it was a bad translation. All the newer ones were better, and I didn't know any better than to believe that. But the Lord got information to me that that wasn't the case. And, and in 1984, I believed the King James Bible, and I have ever since. And computers, of course, in 1980s, computers were still very, very young, and you couldn't really do much with them then. I didn't have one. The first computer I bought was in 1991, and it was an old 286 computer that uh, was very, very, very slow, much slower than anything you've ever seen today. And But the reason I got it was to try to learn you know, how to study the Bible, that is, use it, use it in some way to search the Bible and do different things with the Bible text with it. And 
I was 31 years old that year, and still the computer was very, very slow, and I couldn't do much with it, and I didn't know anything about programming anything. And a few years later, I started to learn a little bit about websites. In the early 90s, there wasn't much of an Internet. There was a little bit of an Internet, but no one had access to it because there were no Internet ISP service providers around that had it. And then they started coming up with dial-up, and dial-up was very slow. You couldn't do much with it either. Some of you younger people don't even know what I'm talking about, dial-up. But it was a, a through a phone modem. But anyway, you could make basic web pages, and I learned how to do HTML, a little bit of HTML coding in the mid-'90s, and came out with preservedwords.com. And it's still live. It's one of the older, older Bible-based websites on the Internet now. It's like nearly 25 years old. But if you go to preservedwords.com, you'll see some articles that I've written over the years that deal with the Bible-believing perspective and similar things. Some of them are controversial. Some of them are pretty basic. But uh, in uh, the early 2000, I was trying to come up with a script, a way to be able to search out Bible references in text. You have any text and a way to be able to find the Bible reference and make it pop up the Bible reference. And with some help from others, I finally the Lord made it possible to where I was able to do that. And it's a utility now called Popverse. And it's an extension for the Chrome browser. I can't show it to you right now. But if you go on the Chrome browser and search for Popverse, it'll be an extension that any that you load onto Chrome and any Bible reference on that page will pop up when you put the mouse cursor over. And it gives a lot more exposure to the Bible where people cannot just see the reference but see the text itself. But anyway, that leads to Bible Analyzer. In about 2004-2005, I didn't know anything about programming. I'm, uh, I'm a self-taught programmer and I was taught but <laughs> that's what it over the years I was 45 44 years old when I started it so you know most computer programmers you think are young but uh, I guess I'm an unlikely one because I started when I was in my 40s hmm. and and slowly it became to the in, in development to what it is now and it's at version it'll soon be at version 5.4 it's free you can download it it's built around the King James Bible it has over 100 free modules that you can download, and also there are other modules which you can purchase for a small fee, but uh, there's over 100, and the most important modules are free, but that's, in a nutshell, the last uh, 20, 25 years of my life have been, uh, as far as the internet and things like this are concerned, it was developing the website preservedworks.com and developing the program Bible Analyzer. It's a cross-platform also. It's in Windows, Macintosh, and Linux. So it's there. If anyone wants to use it, wants to try it, and Lord willing, we'll be able to demonstrate it a little bit as we go along with this gap theory idea. Now, I'll, uh, I can talk more about the gap theory, I guess, when my turn comes and how I got uh, more recently interested in that. I've heard about it for ever since I've been saved for 40 years from Clarence Larkin, C.I. Schofield, and others like that. That's where I first heard of it. And I looked at it and thought, well, that's interesting. But and I looked into it 
two or three times over the years in some detail, but it's not until recently that something came about that made me look into it very seriously and also made me write a book that is also on preservedwords.com. Or if it's not a book, it's a series of essays, about 10 of them, that deal with the gap theory and some of the ramifications of it and some of the reasons that I believe that it needs to be looked at in more detail because of some of the claims others are making for it. But in a nutshell, brother, that's uh, my long and windy introduction. <laughs> hey, that'll work, man. Um, and we were kind of talking before we came on uh, just kind of how you and I had connected. And we've probably been talking back and forth for two or three years, and this is the first time that we've actually spoke over a video conference or anything like that. Um, so I, I consider you a friend, even though we've never actually met in person. And uh, I use the Bible Analyzer software myself. Um, I've, I've got every uh, module that is either a purchased module or a free module. And I've got to tell you, it is, it is one of the best tools that I've got when I'm doing research because um, a lot of it is just church, church history um, searches. You can, you've got, he has, Tim, for those of you who are viewing live or listening to the audio right now, I know it's not related to the gap theory, but um, you can do searches through any church history, church father, uh, for any given subject that you want to, whether it's a, a, a key word or a key verse, and you can see exactly what uh, each church father has actually written on any key uh, subject that you type in there or a key verse. And so it just it's invaluable to me uh, to be able to have tools like that and to, uh, to be able to compare different versions and commentaries. I think you've probably got, what, over 100 different commentaries on there, uh, not counting all the different books that have commentary and, and um, um, exegetical material, whether it's dictionaries. and I mean, it, it's just, it's a really good program. So, Tim, I, I've got to say, man, um, I consider you a friend. I consider, uh, I really appreciate you, you <laughs> learning how to, to program so that I can have access to it and use that for my own personal study. So, I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. But okay, so here's here's how it's going to look tonight, guys. Um, I should say this afternoon. I know we've got football on and uh, a lot that's going on, but we're going to be talking about the gap theory this afternoon. Uh, the structure is going to be 20 minutes each. We're going to lay out our positions, and then we're going to just open it up, uh, kind of an informal uh, uh, dialogue period where we can go as long as we want to. Uh, once we, dis we, we decide we're, we're kind of to the point that we're going to close, we're going to go to three to five minute uh, closing statements each. And uh, then we'll open it up to questions to whoever's viewing live. And uh, then we'll wrap it up and go from there. So uh, with that said, I'm going to go first since I'm taking the affirmative for the gap theory. And then Tim is going to go second. I do want to put a 20 minute timer up on the screen for those of you who are viewing. Uh, so you can just kind of follow along and know, um, you know, kind of, where we're at as far as that timeline goes. It doesn't have to be exactly 20 minutes, but um, roughly, roughly 20 minutes. So let me put that up there. You should be able to see it, and we'll get rolling here. Okay, so for my opening statement, um, I'd like to first uh, state the question and try to figure out what it is I'm trying to answer. The question is, is it reasonable to believe in the gap theory? Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to identify what the gap theory is, and then we'll discuss three aspects for why it's relevant and consistent with the Christian worldview. These are the historical argument, the grammatical argument, and what we would call the angelic argument. 
Now, as an opening description for what the gap theory actually is, it, it does go by another name as well. You may have heard of it, the ruin reconstruction theory, uh, which was most popular and consistent the most popular and consistent explanation of the first chapter of Genesis by evangelical Christians uh, from the late 1800s until the mid-1900s. In simplicity, the gap theory stated that the first two verses of the first chapter of Genesis left room uh, for great time periods that are, are separate and distinct from the earth's age, which was marked by the renewing of the earth in six days, as revealed in verses 3 through 31 of the same first chapter. The first verse stated the original creation of the heaven and the earth as a perfect orderly cosmos. However, the second verse tells us that the earth came to be in a condition of darkened chaos submerged under a blanket of water. Uh, there are many indications that this was a judgment from God, and we're not told how long this condition lasted. So the actual age of the earth is not given in the Mosaic account. Moses never made the mistake of saying the earth was only 6,000 years old. In addition, the third clause of the first two uh, of verse two describes the Holy Spirit of God as moving over the waters before inaugurating the renewal of the earth in six literal days. So from the time of this renewal and the creation of man, the history of activity on this earth can be dated with close accuracy in the biblical chronological record. Man's history, starting with the six days taken literally, comes to approximately 4,000 years at the time of Christ but this has nothing whatsoever to do with the actual age of the earth. Now, for the first point, the historical argument, we have to ask a few preliminary questions and statements. The first is, is this topic taboo? It may be taboo to some people to talk about the gap theory, uh, but I don't believe it is or should be considered taboo, uh, especially when we're talking about uh, the, re the reality of um, some of the things that we observe in um, the natural world. What do we actually see and how does it compute with the Bible? Some would say that uh, science and Christianity or the Bible um, are, uh, they're, they're not mutually inclusive, which would say that the, the two are opposing forces against each other. I don't believe that they are. I believe science and the Bible are cohesive. I believe they're a witness together. Uh, and I, I believe that you can see that from Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 21. Um, through general revelation, and then uh, that would be the natural world that we see. God reveals himself through the natural world. He also reveals himself through what we call special revelation, uh, which would be the word of God. So I do, I do believe that um, the two ways God is revealing in himself um, are not opposing forces against each other. The, the second question is, is it a fundamental of the faith? The answer is no. Is it worth breaking fellowship over? Again, the answer is no. Does the gap theory in any way support evolution or theistic evolution? I would say that uh, it, it may be used by some people who have an agenda to prove evolution or theist, the, theistic evolution. I don't believe that it's any more of a conjecture to use the gap theory to prove evolution as you would uh, the, the six-day creation account of Genesis chapter 1 to prove an evolution account. And either way, it, 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 the evolution account is something that it, some people have an agenda for no matter what. Now, C.I. Schofield, Benjamin Warfield, James Orr, and R.A. Torrey all asserted that there were five fundamentals of the faith, one being the deity of Jesus Christ, two, the virgin birth, three, the blood atonement, four, the bodily resurrection, and five, the inerrancy of scriptures. Um, I, I don't believe that the gap theory is in there. I don't believe it's an essential of the faith. I don't believe that if you, if you, if you don't believe 
that there is a gap or you do believe there is a gap that you're going to die and go to hell if you, if you do believe there's a gap theory. I don't believe that you're going to die and go to hell uh, if you believe in evolution. Um, I believe this is a topic that Christians should be able to study the scriptures and examine it and see whether a thing be so or not, which is what we're trying to do here today. Now, what's the controversy? The first question that needs answered is, when did the first day actually begin? The two options are either one, with the creation of light in Genesis 1-3, or two, in the beginning of Genesis 1-1. Now, much of the controversy con uh, concerning the creation account of Genesis centers on the meaning of the word day. Uh, that would be yom in the Hebrew. Some consider it to be a normal 24-hour day. Others say it refers to a period of time of unspecified length. Still others treat it as part of a literary form. Now, this controversy at times, it's become very bitter. Uh, there didn't appear to be this divisiveness in the early history of the church. For the first 1,600 years of the Christian church, there seemed to be a tolerant attitude toward differing views on the meaning of the creation days. Probably most adhered to the 24-hour day viewpoint, but there were a number of exceptions. For example, Clement of Alexandria in 150 to 215 AD, he was an early Christian convert and a theologian. He believed that the creation was instantaneous and that the days of Genesis 1 were used to show the priority of created things, but not the timing. Here's some quotes by two other early church theologians. As for the, these days, it is difficult, perhaps impossible to think, let alone explain in words what they mean, unquote. This would be Augustine in 354 to 430. Uh, here's another quote. The days of Moses' account are not to be equated with the days in which we live. That would be Anselm. 1033 to 1109. Now, Augustine seems to have believed that the creation of matter was instantaneous and that the days were epochs or ages of formation. The major church creeds took no definite position on the length of the creation days, and this would seem to indicate that the timing of the creation events was not considered to be of primary importance. Take, for example, the Apostles' Creed. It simply states, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Uh, the Nicene Creed in 381 limits its statement on creation to this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. The Heidelberg Catechism states the following. God created them, man and woman, good in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they may know uh, God, their creator, uh, loved him with all their heart, and uh, live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules by his eternal counsel and prov uh, providence. The Belgic Confession, 1566, has this to say about creation. We believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing when it seemed good to him by his word. That is to say, his Son, he has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their creator. He also created the angels good that they might be his messengers and serve his elect. Uh, the Westminster Confession says it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. Now, when it comes to the creation days, we do know there are four major interpretations of the Genesis uh, creation days, as well as five of what we would be what would be lesser known interpretations. Uh, the first being the calendar day interpretation. This is often called the literal view, the traditional view, or the 24-hour view. The calendar day perspective may be described very simply. 
It accepts the first chapter of Genesis as historical and chronological in character, and it takes the creation week as consisting of 26 24-hour days, followed by a 24-hour Sabbath. Since Adam and Eve were created as mature adults, so the rest of creation came forth from its maker. The garden included full-grown trees and animals, which Adam named. And those holding this view believe this is the normal understanding of the creation account, and that this has been the most commonly held understanding of this account, both in Jewish and Christian history. Uh, they believe that the only reason many reject this view is a desire to conform to the current view of science. Number two would be the day-age interpretation. Uh, the six days of the day-age view are understood in the same sense as in that day of Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 13. In other words, as periods of indefinite length. Uh, I don't need to break that down too much. That just means that um, you could, that some people use that to say that uh, the six days were long periods of time that are unknown. And uh, usually it's, it's it, it actually predates Charles Darwin and the evolutionary science. Um, but many people today use it to um, kind of um, allow the evolutionary means to work into the creation account. Number three would be the framework interpretation. Uh, this would be the distinctive feature of the framework view is its understanding of the week as a metaphor. So it would make it metaphorical, um, which means Moses used the metaphor of the week to narrate God's acts of creation. Uh, therefore, the natural creative words are fiats, are real and historical, uh, but the exact timing is left unspecified. Now, number four, this is the, the fourth most popular. This is called the analogical days interpretation. According to this view, the days of Genesis 1 are God's work days. So they would be analogous, but not necessarily identical to human work days. So it sets a pattern for our rhythm of work and rest, uh, which would simply represent periods of God's historical supernatural activity in preparing and populating the earth as a place for humans to live, love, work, and worship. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's a literal 24-hour day period um, when it comes to God's actual creative act. Now, this obviously is, is going to be problematic for um, a six-day six literal creation. Uh, a few of the, the lesser-known ones would be the intermittent day interpretation. It just says the 24-hour days are separated by periods of unspecified length. Uh, the, the next one would be the Days of Divine Fiat Interpretation. as a view proposed by Alan Hayward in his book Creation and Evolution that the six days are consecutive 24-hour days um, in which God set his instructions uh, while the fulfillment of those instructions took place over unspecified and possibly overlapping periods of time. Now then you've got the Temple Interpretation. That starts to get kind of weird. Uh, then you've got the Attack Against Polytheism which is a polemical approach to counter the multiple gods theory of pagan Egyptian and Mesopotamian creation descriptions as taking place by other gods. Uh, then you've got the historical creationism. Uh, and then, and that would kind of wrap up the different views. Now, why do I mention all of these alternate views? Every one of these views has been used to provide an explanation that allows for evolution uh, as opposed to the literal creation act by God within 24-hour periods. I, I mention all of these because I do reject evolution. I reject theistic evolution even, and I believe the gap theory provides a period of time that science observes in the real world as an explanation Christians are looking for. Science and the Bible are not at odds with each other, as many Christians and non-Christians would have us to believe. The gap theory is the answer to this conundrum, and honestly, it gives a robust answer to a complex question that will allow any Christian or non-Christian to at least consider the point. 
Is it reasonable to believe in the gap theory? This is the question I seek to answer, and I do believe that it is reasonable. Now, next, let's look at the grammatical structure. No matter what one thinks about the meaning of verses 1 and um, verse 2, the text absolutely demands by the exegetical and hermeneutical laws that the first day begins in verse 3 of this text. And if that's been established as the case, then there is a gap of time indicated between verse 1 and verse 3. In the second edition of the Pentateuch and Haftorahs, which is the standard Jewish law and commentary in the English-speaking world, and is distributed in nearly every synagogue, it's, it says, Concerning the first few, few verses of Genesis 1, this comment is made, Ages untold may have elapsed between the calling of matter into being and the reduction of chaos to ordered arrangement, unquote. I'd like to draw to your attention again that earlier we had a quote from ancient Jewish uh, sages who said, all agree that nothing was created on the first day. I may not have mentioned that, I meant to. Um, but that's, that's what the Jewish historical view is, that um, everyone is in agreement. Nothing was created on the first day. So let's talk about that a bit. Let's talk about the, uh, the term formless and void. The Hebrew term is uh, tohu wabohu, and an exegetical study on the Hebrew figure of speech, tohu wabohu, shows that the term describes both circumstances that are the cause of judgment and the consequences experienced as a result of judgment, which is often simply a withdrawal of God's protection of a society from the evil tendencies of humankind. Now, when a portion of the world is drastically and violently upside down from God's intentions, Scripture shows that God often decides to shake that world through judgment and start over with a person or people who are open to his leading. Some judgment is always associated in Scripture with the word tohu. Therefore, it's logical to assume that the first occurrence of the word in Genesis 1-2 would have had the same connotation. In fact, it's likely that this would have been the original use of the term that other writers of Scripture had in mind in their own use of the term. It might seem natural to ask, then, what could have been in existence before the Genesis 1 creation account that God would have seen a need to judge? Now, Merrill Unger represents a conservative evangelical understanding that the, the first verses of Genesis may speak of a judged earth that is about to be recreated. Here, quote, Genesis 1-1 to 2 evidently describes not the primeval creation ex nihilo, which is out of nothing, but the much later refashioning of a judgment-ridden earth in preparation for a new order of creation, which would be man. The Genesis account deals only with God's creative activity as it concerns the human race and its origin, fall, and redemption. God did not create the earth in a state of chaos, wasteness, emptiness, and darkness. We know this from Isaiah 45:18. It was therefore reduced to this condition because it was in the theater where sin began and God's originally sinless universe in connection with the revolt of Lucifer, Satan, and his angels. We see this from references in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, Ezekiel 28, 13, 15 through 17, and Revelation 12, 4. The chaos was the result of uh, God's judgment upon the originally sinless earth. Another reference for this would be Jeremiah 4, 23. The term tobu wabohu is not limited, however, to a description of the physical condition of the land before the creation events of Genesis 1. Satan is still active in this world, deceiving people into ongoing rebellion and violence. Therefore, Tobu Wabahu can also describe rebellion and chaos at a societal level or at a personal level with regard to physical or spiritual conditions. So we'll see the conditions described as Tohu Wabahu are never God's will, and that he wants to work through his people to correct these conditions, which would be 
by his command to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth in, in verse 28. Gregory Boyd uses a, vi a vivid word picture to describe the role of humanity where he says, quote, Creation was birthed in an infected incubator, and humanity was given leadership over this earth as the means of killing that infection, unquote. So there's six key points to chapter one, number one being the hermeneutics. This would be the science of interpretation of the Hebrew text taken literally from an obvious formula for which each of the six days. Uh, this absolutely cannot be circumvented. The six days clearly begin in verse three and not in verse one or verse two. Number two, there cannot be a biblical day according to the Mosaic reckoning until light is introduced in verse three of the text. Before that simple fact, you have no day, only darkness. Number three, each of the six days of activity begins with the precise words, and God said. This is the first recorded, uh, this is first recorded in verse three and not previously. Number four, the Holy Spirit of God moving over the face of the waters as stated in the final clause of verse two signals the beginning of this week of activity. The six days emanates from this moving of the Holy Spirit and does not pro precede it. Number five, the precise work of each of the six days is clearly spelled out. The ordering of light and the separation of the 24-hour uh, day into a day of uh, a day and night hours is the sole work of God on the first day. This harmonizes with the theme of preparing environments in the first three days to be filled in the next three days' work. Number six, the heavens and the earth were already in existence prior to the six-day activity of God. The glorious nature of this initial creation of the earth was witnessed by the starry heavens as well as by the angelic hosts. We know this from uh, Job 38, verses 1 through 7. So let me illustrate this for you in verse 3. It says, Then God said, There was evening and there was morning, day one. Verse 6 is day 2, then God said, day 2. Verse 9, then God said, day 3. Verse 14, then God said, day 4. Verse 20, then God said, day 5. Verse 24, then God said, day 6. Notice that God did not say anything until verse 3. Uh, so that's something very important to consider. Um, maybe we'll get a chance to break that down a little bit, but then there's uh, finally to conclude is there's just some general arguments that we need to look at. One would be the angels. When were the angels created if they were created uh, at, uh, during the what's said to be the actual beginning of Genesis chapter 1, if they were there actually singing during the creation events, according to Job 38? Another question that needs answered is uh, the creation of Lucifer. When did he fall? We, we, in light of passages such as Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And, and I know that uh, Timothy is going to have answers for these. Um, and, and this is really where I'm looking forward to engaging in this conversation. But another thing to consider throughout the, um, the, the first chapter of the book of Genesis, there's only one, two things that are actually mentioned as being created, and that's whales and that's man. Everything else is said to be formed or made, uh, which you can, you can form and make a chair of, out of what of all, is already there, but you cannot create a chair ex nihilo by yourself. Man, we know, was actually created, as mentioned as being created, uh, being, as actually formed from the dust of the earth. So create is actually used in a sense of being formed from what is already there as well. Uh, then we look at light and darkness. We know the sun and moon, moon had not been created until day four, yet we see light and darkness on day one. Uh, I'd like to see what Timothy's take on that is. 
um, in, in light of the fact that there is no darkness in God, uh, in light of the fact that this could be a personification of light and darkness, good and evil, God and the devil, as used throughout the Bible. And then finally, we need to look, and I'm sure we will, uh, look at verse 28 uh, in that term, replenish, and uh, go from there. So let me sum it up this way. To conclude, and I'll turn it over to Tim. Finally, we know the heavens and the earth, they will be renewed yet again in the future when God once again creates a new heaven and a new earth. Will it be ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing? The answer is no. It once again is a reformation of what he created from in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 was the actual beginning when he created the heaven and the earth. We know in the book of Revelation it's going to burn up and he's going to reform it into what uh, from that, that same material. So my question is, to end this, if he's going to do it in the future and we accept this, why is it so difficult to believe that he has done it once before? All right, Tim, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, I'll put the camera on you and let me put this 20 minutes up on the screen uh, so the audience can see that as well. Okay. Are we ready? Uh, just a second. Yep, you're good. To, you are good to go, man. Okay. Well, thank you for your your viewpoint on the gap. I'm glad that you're not fanatical about it because I run into some <laughs> I run into some that are absolutely rabid about it, and that's one of the reasons that I have a deal with it now. I mean, as you uh, alleged at the first, you know, the gap theory is something that has to be proven by those who allege it. You know, if I say something is in the Bible, it's up to me to prove that it is in the Bible. You know, if I said that uh, Joshua had a mohawk haircut and rode an Appaloosa horse, you know, that's easy for me to say, but it's hard for me to prove. And that's, but it would be up to me to prove it. And so that's that's what we're trying to do with the the gap doctrine. And another contention I have is it's a taught belief. I've asked people in the several people in the past, and then whenever I encounter them, I said, "When did you first hear the gap theory?" They heard of it like I did. They either read it somewhere or they heard someone mention it. They did not get it just from a straight reading of the Bible. And that's an interesting thing to consider. You don't see a gap in there when you just read it through. It's something that has to be pointed out to you. And therefore, it's not an, an explicit doctrine. It is based on inferred beliefs. And the honest gap theorists, now not all of them, but the honest ones will admit that it is based on inferred beliefs. It is not explicitly stated. And in relation to that, there are very, very many variations of the gap theory. And that also indicates that it's not a settled doctrine. There's people that believe that there were men on the earth during the gap period, but there are those that believe that there were not men on the earth. There's those that believe that the earth at that time was a mineral earth and did not have any plant life. There's those that believe that there was plant life to account for the uh, geological data that we have today. But the main reason that I debate the gap now, like I said, I have heard of it for years and years and years. But the reason I debate about it now is because of some of the rabid approach that some of the more fundamentalist brethren, and I consider myself a fundamentalist and a Bible believer. But all through the years, when you look at Larkin and Schofield, Pember, even Chalmers and all the others that come up with the gap, they'll talk about it in a uh, possibility manner. They say, well, it appears or it seems. 
But now we have a set of uh, Bible believers that are starting to call it the gap fact. They're saying it is a Bible fact, an absolute fact. And the worst part about that is, is that they are saying that if a person does not believe the gap, they don't believe the Bible. And then if they don't believe the Bible, well, then there's certain ones that teach they can't be saved. I've had two different people tell me that they know of pastors that teach that if you don't believe the gap, you don't believe the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, you can't be saved. That's a dangerous, dangerous road to go down. And actually, it's heresy, and I stand against it. It's not the gap itself. The gap itself is kind of benign. If you just, whether you believe a gap or not, is a really a benign belief. It doesn't hurt you either way if you believe it as a theory or as a possibility. But when you go to teaching it as absolute proven fact, and if you don't believe it, you're not really a Bible believer or you're not really saved, that's a whole different ballgame. But anyway, the history of the gap theory is, as we know it today, started only about 200 years ago. Now, there's those that'll say that it was found by the They'll go into some of the writings of the church fathers and say that they can find a gap here and a gap there. But the very vague uh, quotations are kind of like reading the quotations of Nostradamus. You know, you can make them mean anything you want. But the gap theory, as it came about, as it's used today, was come about by a man named Thomas Chalmers only about 200 years ago. And the reason that he was looking for a gap in the Bible was because it was during the late 1700s that all the geological sciences came about, and they began to say, well, you know, the world's a lot older than what Usher says in his timeline. The earth is a lot older than 6,000 years old. We believe there's millions of years in there. Of course, now it's expanded towards billions of years. Well, Chalmers was a Christian, and he said, well, what am I going to do? So he went into the Bible looking around and reading some old things, some suggestions, and he said, well, looks like there could be a gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And if you can see my screen, you can see here I have Bible Analyzer up, and I have highlighted here Genesis 2. It says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And they say, hey, there's a break in the narrative right there. There's a break. There's a pause we might be able to stick something in there. How in the world did the earth become without form and void? Why is it that way? Well, that was the start of the gap theory. And he started teaching that, and it became accepted by some people. You come along, you have um, George Pember. George Pember in the late 1800s wrote a book, Earth's Earliest Ages. And it even ex uh, extended the gap theory and dealt more and more and more with it. And from Pember came Schofield and Larkin. They developed a gap theory, and they're the ones that mainly introduced, along with Pember, the uh, Lucifer theory. That's where Lucifer fell, and that's where all the angels came from and all of that. But when you look at Genesis 1-2, it says the earth was without form and void. The way that the gap theorists deal with that verse is they have to change it. That is Tom... Uh, Thomas Chalmers and the others, they cannot say, they don't want it to say, and the earth was without form. They want to change it to where it says the earth became without form. And they'll go to the Hebrew and go to a long thing about showing how that word is mistranslated and should be became instead of was without form. But no one agrees with them. They'll, they'll, they'll put all of these scholars, these Hebrew scholars, and say what it should be. But you know, even all of the new Bible translations
was or something similar. They don't say became because I'm not a Greek or a Hebrew scholar by no means, but it's an indication when all these new translations even refuse to, to call it became. They call it was. That's the state that it was in. But anyway, many Bible believers can't fathom why the earth was without form and void, without some vast destruction making it that way. But it just represents a sequential progress in creation. Let's go over to Genesis 2-7. We'll go there. That's where Adam was created. There's a sequence there. When you go to, you'll find that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. First, God had to make the dust. The first part of the sequence was he made the dust. Then he made Adam from the dust. And then he made Adam a living soul by breathing into his body. So you see that Adam and also the Garden of Eden were made in steps or sequences. It wasn't just an instantaneous thing. The Lord could have just said, poof, Adam, there you are, but he didn't. He did it as a process. If you look at verse 8 of, of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Well, he put Adam there, and then you'll look down there, and what did he tell Adam to do? He told Adam to dress it. You know what the word dress means? Dress means to put it in order. He told Adam, put the garden in order, because when God created it, it was not in order when God planted it. That Look the word up. Look at how else it's used in the Bible. He wanted him to dress the garden. That's a process. That's a sequence. It wasn't ready to use. God didn't make it that way. And that's the same way with the heavens and the earth. He did not make it that way. If Adam was told to dress or put the garden in order, the Lord must have planted it and created it not complete form. So thus, a formless earth being formed in stages is not out of the ordinary, but is the typical normal method of creation. And we see two examples within the first two chapters of Genesis. Now, there's some confusion about what the earth actually is. You'll notice there in Genesis 1.1, we'll go back there again. God created, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So what's the earth? Well, that is defined right in the chapter. Now, today, us in the 20th, 21st century, we think of Earth, what we, we think of a globe. We think of a planet. The ancient Hebrews never thought of it that way at all. They thought of it as what? Ground. The Earth. Look down at verses 9 and 10 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. See, there's where he made it. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And you notice in verse 1 it says God created the heaven and the earth. You look up there in verse 6 and 7, it says God said let there be a firmament. And then in verse 8, he's, what does he say? And God called the firmament heaven. Right there they are in the exact order that God stated in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He created heaven in verse 8. He created the earth in verse 9. Now, I know that's foreign to some of you because you have your, your, uh, you've been conditioned to think. But let the Bible define its own terms. Look what it says. 
and God called the dry land earth. He named it. How many things does the Lord name? Not that many, but he named that the earth. Now, this brings us over to Job chapter 38, where Brother Josh mentioned. Notice over there, it doesn't say that the angels rejoiced at the beginning of the creation of anything. It says, he says in verse 6, it says, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? That he's talking about the earth. Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He's just speaking about the earth there, foundations. That brings you right back to Genesis chapter 1 where the foundations of the earth come up out of the sea. So all that means, the only thing that Job 38 requires is that the angels were recreated in one of the two days previous because the earth was created on the third day. See, it'll fit if you let it. It'll fit if you let it. What about Genesis 1-1? Brother Josh, you'll have to tell me when my time's up, getting close. <laughs> You've got about nine minutes All right. left. What about Genesis 1-1? It refers to a completed previous creation. There's three views of it. It refers to a completed previous creation, separate from the rest of the chapter. It refers to the beginning of the present and only creation, which continues throughout the chapter. Or it is an overview or summary of the entire creation account. Well, of course, the people that believe the gap believes it refers to completed previous creation. And that, that requires that as Brother Josh mentioned, that everything from verse 3 on is a recreation. It is not an original creation. But you'll notice one verse that's very key that is also in the creation context. And let's go over there. Let's go over to Nehemiah. There you'll find a found passage. It says, Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made, see there's your word, Josh, made. It's not created. He says, thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens. You know what the heaven of heavens is? Now, that's a fascinating statement. That's worth a study because it's found a few times in the Bible. Thou hast made heaven. Notice the order. Notice the sequence. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens. He made heaven, and then afterwards he made the third heaven. Now look what it says, with all their host. What's the host of heaven? What's the host of heaven? The host of heaven, we'll see in just a second. It says, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein. That's the earth and everything in it, including, uh, including all the animals and mankind. The seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. And notice this, and all the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Now, there is a key creation context passage that shows exactly what God was doing. He made heaven. He made the third heaven. He made all of the earth. Notice the order. It fits perfectly with Genesis 1. He created the heavens and the earth. The earth and all things that are therein, and then all the host of heaven worshipeth thee. There's the creatures of heaven that he made earlier in the verse, which would include Lucifer and all of his horde. They fell afterwards. Now, for the sake of, I've got a lot of other things. I was going to mention the darkness, going to mention replenish. I was going to mention all that. Maybe we can later, but I'm going to mention the single verse that disproves the Genesis gap unless a gap theorist can overcome it. 
And that is, of course, the last verse in Genesis chapter 1. And it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This single verse disproves the Genesis gap as it is presented today. It doesn't doesn't, uh, disprove just a gap itself. It disproves a gap that says that Satan fell during the gap and evil came during the gap and judgment came during the gap. There are certain rules of language that must be held as true for words and communication to have meaning. And that is explicit statements always must take precedence over implicit statements. This is a universal truth. Without it, that is, if implicit and inferred statements held the same value as explicit statements, then truth cannot be determined and words have no meaning. It's like suppose you're on trial for your life and there was a bunch of witnesses came up that just had circumstantial evidence and saying, oh, I saw this and saw that and all the other thing. I didn't really see him kill that guy, but I believe he could do it. And then someone else comes up and says they know you didn't do it because they were there. You wouldn't want all of those statements to be considered equally. You would want the explicit statements to be treated as they are, as explicit statements and be judged superior to the implicit statements. I'll give you one example real quickly out of the Bible. In John 21, 22, it says, Jesus saith unto him, if Thou tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the that disciples should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Notice all the believers were, were getting caught up in an inferred belief, an implied belief. They thought because Jesus said that he wasn't going to die. I've often wondered about this passage. I've often wondered about why is it in there, but I believe it's in there for the Lord to show us why, how to use his word. You have to take explicit statements. Now, quickly, just to, 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 to conclude, sound doctrine in the Bible is determined by an explicit statement, and these statements of Genesis 1.31 are as plain and as explicit as one can get. They say in very simple grade school terms, that everything was very good. That does not allow for sin, does not allow for judgment, does not allow for an evil Satan or all his minions milling about. Everything was very good. And unless a gap theorist can produce an equally explicit verse within the same creation context to modify it, that verse has to stand the way it is. I'll give you one example of how you can refute or deal with an explicit statement. Look at Genesis chapter 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. That is a plain, clear, explicit statement. And left as it stands, that means that Adam could have ate of every tree that was there. But look at the next verse. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. And we know why. There was an explicit statement was conditioned by another explicit statement that modified it. It's not an implied statement. It's not an inferred statement. It's an explicit statement within the context. Now, and that's what it takes. If you're going to refute Genesis 131, 
you have to have a statement that is as, as explicit as it is within the creation context. And this verse is so, so troubling to some that believe the gap theory that they actually ignore it altogether. I've seen commentaries of gapists, and when they come to that verse, they ignore it. They bypass it like it's not there. When they're pressed, they'll say, well, this only refers to the recreation from verse 3 onward. Now, wait a minute. The very first words in verse 1, and God created. No, God created the heaven and the earth. Where did darkness come from? Where did the water come from? Did God not create the water in verse 2? Did God not create the darkness? It says over in Isaiah that he did. He creates darkness. And that doesn't work. Just saying it just refers to the recreation from verse 3 onward will not work. That's, that's an inferred or implied statement. But anyway, to finish up, the burden is up on the gap theorists to prove why everything does not mean everything or why very good does not mean very good. And until they do that, until they deal with that, in my opinion, the rest of their arguments are moot. All right, brother, I may have been a little long. I'm sorry, but... No, you're good. That uh, was a, That's about <laughs> as good a timing as you can get. you got 30 seconds left. So if you want to use that or concede it, it doesn't matter to me. I'll go ahead. No, okay. I'm done. Well, let's see. Um, I, this is where we get into the open dialogue. I think this is, this is going to be the fun part. Um, both of us have laid out our position... Uh, I think pretty decently within a 20-minute time frame. Uh, we had to condense a lot of information into 20 minutes. I know there's so much more uh, that could be said on both sides, uh, but this will kind of give us a chance to interact with what was presented and, and to challenge each other in, in some of the areas that we uh, may be weak. So um, if you want to, man, it's, it's up to you. I'll let you go first with your first question, or, and we can just kind of go back and forth from there. Well, okay, brother. Well, just uh, where I finished up, how do you deal with Genesis one thirty one? Well, where does it fit in your idea of the gap? So um, the way that you summed it up at the end is is absolutely in support of the way that I view the beginning of the first day. I think the beginning of the first day is going to be consistent with the beginning of day two, three, four, five, six, and seven, uh, where God says something. He he something happens as being created or formed or made. And uh, then, and then he says the evening and the morning were that day. So that would conclude the day, and then moves on to the next day. So, if if we're following the hermeneutical method, and we see that the exegetical um, layout of the grammatical structure, as I as I mentioned in in my opening statement, uh, verses one and two is is the beginning of everything that is created, uh, but verses verse three is the beginning of the recreation. Um, so that's the way that I would deal with that when it says that everything he created was good uh, or very good. Um, that's what it's a reference to is verse 3 uh, onward. Yes, well, that's, that's, the, that's usually the, way my, the typical response to that. But God created the darkness. Yep. God created the water. God created everything. When all that existed earlier, and you'll have Satan. You have Satan floating around. See, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but according to your view, Satan had already fallen. The darkness was a result of judgment. We have darkness every night. You know, we have darkness every night. We have darkness, and according to some, now see, now I have to I have to be clear. There's so many variations of the gap theory that 
if you'll say what one believes and others say, well, I don't believe that. But most of them will say that the darkness is a result of judgment. Well, that darkness passes right through into verses four, five, six. You'll see it mentioned down there. It's the same darkness. So if that is true, we are enveloped by darkness as we speak. The default state of the universe is darkness and cold. And that means we're enveloped by the judgment of God as we speak. That is all of creation. And then how could God say that was good? That existed when he made the statement in verse 31. How could that be good? How could there be a Satan floating around? And, you know, now, again, there's variations of where he is. Some say that he was in verse uh, two as when Satan was kicked into the spiritual realm, the second heaven. Well, yeah. how could he be there floating around and all of the sin that he caused and the destruction that he caused, how could that be considered very good? I don't think it is. So I, now I wanted to ask you before we move into um, this this question, I, is there any way that we can get your camera on? Because uh, we're still seeing Bible Analyzer. I mean, it's it's up to you. It doesn't make any difference to me. Um, but well, uh, it's uh, it's showing here that it's on. Oh, okay. Let me go. No let me uh, let me turn off. Uh, let's see. Well, only option I have there. Let me go to. I turned the webcam on and off. There we go. We'll see there if that go. makes a difference. Got it. Hey, welcome, man. Hey, we can see you now. So <laughs> one hour in, we get to see the infamous Tim. Well, the famous Tim Morton. So, okay. Now let me try to <laughs> infamous <laughs> to many. <laughs> Oh man. So, um, okay. Let me, let me try to answer the first part of that question. Uh, the, the first part, um, I, I think has to be taken, um, into, into the context of the whole chapter chapter when we're, when we're referencing what is very good. Um, I, I think when we look at Isaiah forty five eighteen and we see what the purpose of the creation was, we don't see God ever creating anything formless and void. In fact, um, you don't, I, I think it's implicit um, and not explicit for you to even say that, um, well, the land was created and then um, and, and the water was created and the definition of the earth is the land when that's not explicit. It just says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then it talks about the condition of the earth after that. But I, I think if we're actually looking at the, the, the exegetical hermeneutical principle of how we're um, dissecting chapter one, every single day begins with God saying something and then something coming into existence. So the question that I would have for you is, why didn't God start verse 1 by saying God said and then the evening and the morning was this and then this this happened and light and darkness came in? But in, even in reference to that, uh, the, the, the light and darkness are both capitalized. So it's not a lowercase l and it's not a lowercase d. And you don't have the sun and the moon created until day four. So if you're saying this is this is this is light from, you know, it could be the sun, could be could not be the sun, could be the firmaments, which the firmaments aren't mentioned of being created yet. So I'd be interested to hear your take on on what this light and darkness is. And uh, my my response is um, uh, as to the fall and timing of 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 Lucifer and his angels 
is is it absolutely falls into the gap of Genesis one verse one and two because um, when you know as, as I just mentioned we're looking at how it, how every day is actually laid out from the beginning God speaking something being created and then it's being declared this is the day um, I think it's I think it's I think it's probably more sound to say that. Uh, the fall of, of Lucifer and the angels that left with him uh, took place before that um, in light of the fact that there is no darkness in God at all, that he separated um, light from darkness he, and, and he separated um, everything that he separated in the first three days and then he begins to form things from what he separated in the, in the next three days. So I, I guess that would, be, that would be my question is one, um, why, didn't, why, do, why does it start in verse three that it says God said this? And then something was created, and then it's it's declared that it is so. And then and then two, um, how is that consistent? What was the other question? That let's start there if we wouldn't, and then we can get into light versus light and darkness there if if you want to go that route. All right. You ask why did he start not start with verse three? Well, of course that would take reading the mind of the Lord, you know, to answer that. But I gave two examples to why how he creates things in a process. In a related uh, question, I could ask, why did uh, God create Adam's body first and then create his, breathe into it to create his soul? He created the, the earth. He created the body from the earth. And then he created a living being. Three steps there. Why? He could have just said, Adam, come forth. Or Adam, come about. He didn't. And like the Garden of Eden. He didn't make it complete either. He made it and wanted Adam to dress it to put it in order, and then to keep it. He didn't say, Adam, just keep the garden. I got it in perfect shape. You keep it. No, he said, you dress it and keep it. That's significant. Now, you mentioned like Genesis chapter 1, you believe there God created the heaven and the earth as it. That is a statement of creation. But I don't really see it that way. I see it as a summary statement. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, and then you go all the way down to Genesis chapter Two and verses one through four, you'll find that it looks like that Genesis verse one is just a summary of what God is going to do. It's kind of like put it this way: say uh, someone was building a house, and they said to parallel verse one, they say, "In uh, 1985, I built my house." Then he goes, "And my house was without form; it was just a pile of lumber and brick." But then, verse 3, and but then I built the foundation, then verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. And then he sums up and says, and that is how I built my house. So Genesis 1 very easily could be a summary statement. It could be a summary statement of what he is going to do in the rest of the chapter. As for verse 2, he started with things in that without form and void state. He made it that way. I mean, that's one thing. The gap people say, well, the Lord made it without form and void. Yes, he did, because he made everything. God created everything. So it is without form and void because he wanted to start that way so he could show us the stages and the process that he was going to use to create. Now, for reasons of his own, I don't know why. No one really knows why. He spent six days to do something he could do in an instant. But apparently it was because he wanted to show us a sequential method of how he works, or how he behaves, and how he wants us to understand him. All right? 
Um, so I see that you're saying that the creation event started in verse one as uh, as the substance being created, um, but but then then you go into detail and say, well, each of these things was created after this as as what he built from what was already there. Is that essentially what you're saying? Is all the material was there in verse one? It just didn't have any shape, it, and it didn't have any form to it. And then God formed it from there. Is that kind of what I'm getting from your argument? Well, he, yeah, he created. See, the Lord had to. He had to before he could create anything. He had to create the physical reality. See, that's not mentioned at all. I mean, the physical reality. See, that God is a spirit, and he lived in a spiritual realm that we really can't understand. There was was no such thing as anything physical until he creates it. It's not mentioned that he creates it. it. We're just told that it's there. It's not mentioned how he creates it. I mean, the the physical reality that the, what we now know is composed of protons, neutrons, electrons, atoms, molecules. You have all the elements and all of that. He had to create all of that before he could make water. See, so here's all of the unmentioned things he had to create. And water is made out of hydrogen and oxygen. We know he had to create hydrogen, oxygen, and all the elements in the physical reality for them to exist in before he could create the water. It's unmentioned. So he just puts it all in one lump sum for all the ages to be able to understand. He says, all right, here the earth's without form. That, because the reason it's without form, there wasn't really any earth. Because the Bible defines itself as dry land. And then it says, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. It doesn't say he moved upon the face of the earth. See, people assume, they bring their presuppositions with them. It says that he moved upon the face of the waters, and people say, well, the waters are on the earth. Well, later on they are, and maybe they are there, but it's not explicitly stated because you'll find other places in the Bible that there's waters above the earth. So and that seems... Uh, anyway... That, that it seems like you and me are really taking the same position here that the material was already there before the creation event actually took place. So you're, you're taking the position that God, God spoke it into existence in verse 1, but he didn't begin to form it until day 1. So it seems like you're drawing a distinction there, even yourself, that, that it was there in verse 1, but he didn't do anything with it until day 1. Is that Are we on the same page there? Well. No, not necessarily. That, because, see, I believe, and I can't prove it. I mean, I can't prove it no more than others can prove that it's a previous creation. But I take verse 1 as a summary statement, and that the actual creation of the physical reality occurred is implied in verse 2. So you it's think because that, something exists. So you would say that verse 1, when God created the heaven and the earth, that it was without, he created it without form and void. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And when it was without form and void, the Lord started just like Adam was nothing but a pile of dust on the ground. Adam was a without form. You notice how it says Adam was formed? Well, then where was Adam before he was formed? He was unformed. He was without form. He was scattered all over the ground. See, and that's really the same exact position that we're taking. We're just saying that God didn't create it formless and void, that there was actually, that that, that is absolutely contrary to what God has ever done in, in, cre in his creation acts, that it was never formless and void when God spoke it into his existence. Because 
I mean, if, if we're actually, and, and I think this is where we can kind of move into the light and dark aspect of the conversation, because um, if, if we look at the, if we look at the facts of what light and what darkness is and what light and what darkness represents, and you see in the New Testament that light and darkness represent children, children of God or children of the devil, children of darkness, children of light, um, how is that? How is that relevant to the conversation that, that we're having now that God would create a world in darkness if there is no darkness in God? It, it, that just doesn't compute to me. It, could you explain that? Well, that, that comes from an error of confusing something, the symbol, with something that's symbolized. See, darkness itself is not evil. And darkness itself is a creation of God where he states that he created it himself. And it's you'll find there in verse 2 that darkness was the default state of the universe. And it still is. If you look up in the sky at night, what do you see? You see darkness with tiny little pinpoints of light. Darkness and cold. A lot of people forget that one. Darkness and coldness are the default states of the universe. Why? He created it that way. Now, I know that the gap theorists teach that it is a result of judgment, but it's not necessarily a result of judgment. Darkness, you'll find after the fall of man, is identified and represents negative things, as you mentioned, but not exclusively, not always. You'll find over there in Exodus and also with uh, Solomon that the God says he dwells in the thick darkness. You'll find that the Lord used darkness to separate the Israelites from the Egyptians. Look that up in Exodus. What was it when the Egyptians were pursuing hard against the Israelites? God put up darkness, and it was a blessing to the Egyptians or to the, to the Israelites because it kept the Egyptians away from them. So darkness primarily has this negative connotation about it, but it's not exclusive, and they're all after the fall. Here, this is before the fall. There's a hint. There's not a hint in this passage that says that this darkness is a result of any kind of judgment. Let me give you one parallel example that's found in the Bible. It's leaven. You know how in the New Testament the Lord says, beware the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, what is leaven? Leaven is nothing but yeast. Leaven is nothing but yeast, we call it now, which is put in bread to make it raise and make it rise. It's not evil in itself. It, it, the, the reason the Lord used it to signify something that can be evil is because it expands. And when you put leaven in something, it expands in that. Well, you put leaven in corruption, the corruption expands. And that's the reason he says to beware of leaven. But there's nothing wrong with leaven. There's nothing wrong with darkness. You say God is not darkness. No, he's not darkness in his person, but it says that he dwells in darkness. So this darkness idea, I've got two chapters on that, one chapter and also an appendix on the website that deals more with this in detail. But yeah, yeah. it's when you, you confuse, uh, the, it's trying to force the symbol with the thing symbolized. And it's just like leaven. Leaven symbolizes evil, but leaven's not evil. Darkness can symbolize evil and judgment, but it's not evil either. And here in verse 2, there's no indication that there's any, it's a result of any kind of judgment or any kind of evil. 
Um, so that would, I'll give my response to that in, in Isaiah 45, 18. We've mentioned this before you, you tackle this in your book as well. Um, in Isaiah 45, 18, it says, for thus says the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So when, when we look as a, as a gap supporter, um, we would look at, at that verse when we're referencing uh, being formless and void, that it wasn't originally created that way. So something had to have had to have actually happened in order for that uh, to become formless and void. If, if, if words do mean any, anything, and there is a, a literal interpretation of Isaiah 45, 18, and we don't just allegorize it and we, and we take it for what it says in the practical meaning of, of, of the words that, uh, it was actually created not in vain. That's that same word vain. There's the same word used um, in in reference to um, uh, um, to becoming what it was. So when 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 we look at that and, and then we carry that over into light and darkness, I I, I see statements that even David said in, in Psalm 135 uh, could be 139. Um, where, where he says that, Behold, even if I make my bed in hell, thou, thou art there. I mean, we believe in the omnipresence of God. We believe in that. Um, there's no, no doubt that God is in the darkness. He's in the light, uh, literal darkness, literal light. But you've got to keep in mind here, even if we're, even if we're saying that this is what happened, um, you've got to take into account that the sun, the moon, the stars, none of that had been created yet. If, if we're actually looking at the events as sequential, as, as you would have us to believe that this is what happened, then what is this light? What is this darkness? If it, if it wasn't even created yet, if the sun, the moon, the stars weren't there, where did it come from? Uh, but it, 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 to the second part of my point, the light, it marks the event of day one, not the creation. So the way that I explain this and the way that I see it is this light, it actually illuminates what's already there, namely the earth itself and the water that's on it and the land that's under the water. So the first three days, God is separating things. The second three days, he's forming things out of what is already there. He's not creating anything new other than what we, we see whales being brought forth in the seas. That's the only thing that's mentioned as being created other than Adam. And, and you mentioned it earlier that Adam was formed from what was already there. But we see then in, in sequential order, the voice of God. So you see the light bringing to light what's already there. Then you see the voice of God. It marks the beginning of that day. Um, and it's not mentioned until verse 3, which you, you still haven't addressed in my, in my opinion. I, don't, I, I have not gathered why the voice of God does not uh, have any mention of what's brought into existence until verse 3. Um, maybe, maybe you could make that a little more clear for me. But um, what, I, what I see after that is the Spirit of God. So it's, it's God. He commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. And for me personally, this, this shows such a great picture for what happens in our own lives on a practical level. As, I, as Christians, we see that the light shown on our hearts is the light giving us knowledge to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So we see it, every single redeemed sinner on the face of the earth stands as a testimony to the spiritual purpose inherent in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And not chapters 1, 2, and 3, but chapter 1, verse 2, and verse 3. So there's, there's many times that we see that there's people who are perishing. There's, there's, there's any, you, were, you were created good, but you've got a sin nature, and, and now you've got a sin nature that needs redeemed. We, we see this as the personification, the, the type of what happens in our own lives where we need a redeemer to come and shape us and form us, um, to bring us out of the, de the, the destructive 
path that we're on. And it, it starts with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit starts moving, and then God speaks, and then Jesus forms it, and, and there's life breathed into it. And, and I just think that it's, it's a, a, a great picture for what actually happens in our own practical life. But um, I still don't see... I still don't see the connection that you're drawing there because um, I, I see that you're it's it's just conflicting to me I mean are you saying that that water and every all the substance was created in verse one or are you saying that each day is when each of these different uh, materials were actually created because I'm not sure that I've got a clear answer on that or at least I don't understand it okay okay I understand. Well, first of all, you mentioned the darkness again about how that was part of the omnipresence of God. But no, that's not quite, because if you look at 1 Kings 8, 12, it says God dwells in the thick darkness. You know, God doesn't dwell in hell. You know, God doesn't dwell everywhere. He's present everywhere in his, you know, in his attribute of omniscience. But he doesn't dwell everywhere. And also it's in 2 Chronicles 6, 1. The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. So see, the Lord lives there. So if the, you can't say the Lord is living in the center of evil. I mean, that, that runs into problems of its own. Now, you mentioned that in verse 3, again, why he didn't start with verse 3, and also was everything that was created a recreation. Well, you're, you mentioned the physical things and the physical aspects that the Lord created, but what about the life? Where did the animals get their life? Where did the trees get their life? They're, they're, they're more than just a collection of elements. They're more than just a collection of minerals. The life had to be put in them. Yeah. And th th where did the life come from? It didn't come from previous life. The Lord had to put it in them. Just like he gives us an example with Adam. He had to breathe it into him. Now, it doesn't say that the Lord breathed, you know, breathed into each elephant or each fish or you know, each dog or cat. No. But still, the, we know that the life came from the Lord. So it's not all entirely, like I, I understand you're making it into a recreation of things of a, of a leftover earth. You know, the earth was left over from the judgment. And so the Lord just there forming things back, putting them together. But the life doesn't come that way. He had to put it in there. And again, like with Adam, when he was formed, it is a a nutshell example of his, uh, the, it's kind of the climax of his creation, of his, of his, the whole, everything he did during the creation week. He put together, and again, like I say, in my view, verse one, he didn't create anything. It's just an opening statement. What he did create the physical reality in verse two, he created it without form and void so he could put it together. He wanted to put it together in stages as a process, just like a person wants to build a house. Say you want to bake a cake. So I'm going to go bake a cake. You know, you say you, you talk about baking a cake before the cake exists. I'm going to go bake a cake. Or where is the cake? It's in a box in there. You know, you got to add the water. You say, I'm going to make a cake. Then when you add the water, make the batter. Well, you, I'm going to make a cake, but now the cake is just batter in a bowl. Then you take it and put it and fix it and put it in a pan and you bake it. It's the same principle. Like I said, building a house, baking a cake, anything. He has an opening statement. He performs all of his acts. And then he has a closing statement down there in uh, chapter two. And that's where he says in verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. 
and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, the Lord ended his work. And then he talks about how he rested on the seventh day. So actually, verse one of chapter two kind of fits better with uh, chapter one, because verse one or chapter one, verse one and chapter two, verse one are the opening and closing statements of his entire creation acts. Okay. So I think actually you and I, <laughs> this is going to sound weird to say, you and I are in agreement on everything that you just said, except for the fact that um, you don't believe there was a judgment in between uh, verse one and verse three. You, you do believe that the substance of everything that was created was already there, but life had to be breathed into it um, in order for it to actually become a living organism. And I agree with you on that. I, the, we don't have any dispute there. Um, the only the only difference is for me I, I think it's really key and and, and I, I I think that we really need to address Isaiah forty five eighteen and and get your take on that if God didn't create it void then then how did it become void well okay uh, forty five eighteen I'll just read the verse real quick for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens God Himself that formed the earth and made it He established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there's none else. Okay, there's the word formed again. Now, it says he created it not in vain. He said that just means he created it for a purpose. Now, when did he do the forming? It couldn't have been before verse 2. Why? Because there he says it's without form. See, it's, it, he, you have the word formed in there twice. It cannot refer to to Genesis 1-1 because in Genesis 1-2 he says it is without form and when did he do the forming he did the forming starting with Genesis 3 that's when he formed the earth he he created it not in vain and he wanted it to be inhabited he wanted people to live in it but he did not want people to live in it until after it was formed so he that's the reason he made Adam last he had all the rest of the earth created, all the rest of the earth formed, and he says, now, since I didn't create it in vain, I'm going to put man in it who I created it for to start with. That's, I mean, I believe that's a pretty clear view. It uses the same words. It uses the same reasoning. It cannot refer to anything before verse 2 because in verse 2 it says it's without form. And here he says he did the forming, so it had to be afterwards. Well, and I would actually agree with everything that you said in describing what took place other than the timing of what took place. Uh, so when, I'm, when I look at it and see that God didn't create it in vain, if, if he didn't create it in vain, and, and you're saying that the definition of, of vain there is just the purpose for man to be there and uh, for, for everything that follows the forming after that, um, I, I think that the timing aspect of it is just it's, it's conflictory, whatever that word is. It's contradictory um, to say that it, it, it was not created in vain and then to find that it was formless and void when it, I, I, obviously you've got the, the, the different events that took place after that. It's just peculiar for me to, to see that you're, we're, we're so much in agreement that everything was already there before the six days of creation. It's not like it was brought into existence ex nihilo um, each day. So it, it was already there. We agree with that. We're just we're just um, really talking about what took place uh, in order for, to see a need for it to be formed. 
Um, so I think that that would kind of lead us to what you had mentioned in your opening statement, and I had mentioned in my opening statement as well in relation to the heavens, the angels, and Lucifer in Job 38, verses 1 through 7. And uh, um, obviously I would, I would take the position that uh, the angels and, and Lucifer had to have been in existence prior to um, the events that take place from verse 3 on, uh, just for the simple fact that they're there singing praises. So now you, you're, it seems that you, you, you draw a um, relatively large importance on what's implicit and what's explicit. And uh, to me, this is a really important aspect of, of, of not only the gap theory, but where you place the creation of angels and, and Lucifer himself um, in relation to the fall of Lucifer and the angels. Because um, really, really the argument is, um, how are they there singing during the creation event? And you say, well, they had to have been there. It's implied in the text on either days one or two. We don't know. It doesn't say. But to me, that, that's a pretty strong statement to say, they had to have been there, and they were singing during the creation event because they were already created, but we just don't know when they were created, so we're going to imply they were created on days one or two. To me, I'd need a little more proof than that to kind of get there, uh, and maybe you can help me with that, but um, the other aspect of that is is understanding, like, I mean, the timing of when Lucifer and his angels fell in relation to the timing of, of Adam and Eve and when they fell. Uh, it's just... It, it all would have had to happen so stinking fast if they were all created within two days of each other, three days of each other, four days of each other. Um, so I would ask that and, and see if we can start there and go go from there. Well, okay. You mentioned uh, Job chapter 38. That one's mentioned quite a bit. Let's, just, let's go over there and look at the context. Now, you got to be real careful with what it says. Look at verse 4. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? You'll notice he doesn't say, the Lord doesn't say when I started creating things. He doesn't say, where were you when I started creating things? He said, where were you when I created the heavens? He doesn't say that. He says, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, and can, and I say, say, can, can we just kind of go point by point here? Because I don't, um, I might lose some of the, the different things that you say. If you keep reading, um, in verse in verse nine, he says, "I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it." Well, that sounds pretty close to what we're talking about on day one, verse three, and uh, broke it up for my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and and said, "Thus far shall you come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed." And uh, he says, "And commanded the morning since your days, and caused the day spring to know his place, that it may take hold, take holds of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it." To me, it seems like God's setting the bounds of where the waters are when he actually began to separate the waters. So that would that would have to be during the creation events. But what would your response be to that? Well, yes, but that was on day three. When you go back to Genesis 1, when you look at it, it says the, that the earth came up out of the waters. And that's where the earth is first mentioned as being a created object, created the earth came up out of the waters and was, in a sense, right. created as earth that day. There was no earth before there because that is when he named it. There was no dry land. Again, the definition of earth, as the Bible defines it, is dry land. There is no dry land in verse 2. There's no dry land in verse 3. There's no dry land in the next couple of verses where he creates the firmament and divides it into the heavens. So, There's no dry land till you get to verses 9 and 10, and that's my point here. 
In verse 4, Job, he tells Job, where was there when I laid the foundations of the earth? So that brings us all the way down to day 3 in verses 9 and 10. And it's, it doesn't take us up to Genesis chapter 1. So for them to be there, they were created sometime. It's not stated, but they were created sometime before day three. And those verses you mentioned on down there about the waters and uh, who set up the sea with doors. Yes, that's all mentioned in verses nine and 10, because when the earth comes up out of the sea, it splits the sea and it makes a boundary of the sea. See, there were no there was no beach. You know, a beach is a boundary. We go to the beach, so that's the boundary between land and sea. There was no beach until the earth came up out and caused a division in the waters. And so all of that in Job chapter 38 fits perfectly with Genesis 1, 8, and 9, where the earth is first formed up out of the waters and separates the waters into seas. And that is what the, the sons of God saw. And when they saw that, they rejoiced. And they could have been created when the heavens were created a day earlier. Now, you say that seems fast. Well, to us it does. <laughs> that's what, that's what I was going to say, man. You know, one-day-old creatures, you know, one-day-old creatures. But, uh, uh, oh, okay. It says over there in Ezekiel 28 where it speaks about Lucifer, about him being created. It says he was created on a day. It said, and the day that thou wast created. Now, that, that, there, that uh, statement gives uh, people that believe in a gap theory a problem, too, because they have to come up with a day other than the days of creation. They have to come up with a day that's not listed in Genesis uh, chapter 1, because it says that Lucifer was created on a certain day. Well, I don't disagree. I don't, I don't know of anybody who actually would disagree that Lucifer was an actual was. I mean, I believe he was a created being. I believe the angels are created beings. But it does, I was going to say that it does seem a little quick um, for the angels to, to fall and then to lead a rebellion and, and, and then to be able to deceive Eve and then for Adam to be deceived and for the human race to fall. Um, and only, I mean, they would have had to have fallen and, and departed from the presence of God or the garden of God even. Um within two or three days of the creation event, if that's actually what the timeline is of what you're telling us. Uh, but then you don't know what the timeline of how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before, one, before Eve was created, and then two, before Adam was created. Um, or not before Adam was created, but before Adam and Eve fell. So there, there's, there is a gap there. You don't know how long it was between Eve being, being formed out of, out of Adam, and then you don't know how long it was before they fell. So to me, it seems really fast to say, well, yeah, the fall of the angels and Lucifer and all that happened within two or three days of the actual creation events. Um, even though you're you're still telling us that none of these elements were actually created during the six days of creation, they were formed from what was created on in verse one, which isn't mentioned in and as as a part of day one. So, and I don't want to go back to that, but what my take would be in response to this is you've described Job thirty-eight as having to fall into uh, the timeline from when the seas had, had already um, separated and the dry land began to appear, which that dry land uh, being called Earth as, a, as opposed to a planet, it's, it's literal land. So what, what I say is that it, it actually shows us that those sons of gods, they were, they were singing praise during the Genesis 1 account, which if, if you take it literally, you take it at face value, it tells us um, several important facts about this passage. First, 
we, we see all the heavenly bodies were already in place before the earth was created. All right? So you're not even taking the position that the sun, the moon, the stars, they were all created on day four. You're, you're taking the, the position that I am, that, that they actually um, had been created. And to me, that seems pretty harmonious with Genesis 1-1. They were, they were already there. And uh, when we see uh, in 1-1 that God created the heavens, it doesn't mean an empty place as some creationists would, would speculate. But actually, it, it's an observable, starry universe um, in addition to what Moses was telling us about, um, about nothing about the creation of the angelic world. So we've got to understand there were already in existence before the creation of the earth and before the specific six days of the Genesis 1 account. Um, so, and, and just to kind of wrap that up, it says here, the, the angels are, are pictured as witnesses to the special creation of the earth. Indeed, the angels shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth and hung the earth in space as a final uh, complement to the universe. And, and we, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more, but um, how does that, how does that um, kind of differ from what you're saying? Because it seems to me that it would, it would really be more um, cohesive with Genesis 1.1 as opposed to day four or five? Well, see, the difference that we have is uh, you're treating the earth as a planet, as a globe. In verse 1, Genesis 1, 1, you're seeing the earth as a, God created the heaven and the earth, and the, the Lord created this big ball that's surrounded by water. But that's not the position I take. The only thing that you find, like I said, that's a summary statement. In verse 2, it says the earth was without form. Well, something's without form. It's not put together yet. When something's without form, it's not, it's not, it, it doesn't exist the way it's supposed to exist because it hasn't been formed yet. Yeah. The only thing you can definitely say existed in verse 2 of Genesis 1 is water and the Spirit of God. And, of course, the Spirit of God is eternal. And then the earth does not come about until verses 9 and 10. That's where Job uh, verse 38 comes in. The, there is no earth as we would understand it, which is land, until verses 9 and 10. There's no globe. Uh, the globe idea is recent. Now, well, I believe it's true. I, I, don't get me wrong. I wrote a book on the cosmology, too, and on the flat earth and all that nonsense. See, that's and what geocentrism I was going to ask you. And all that. When I, yeah, I don't believe none of that. What I'm saying is we know now that the the entire landmass of the earth and water forms a globe, and that is collectively called the earth. But in the right. Bible, it's not presented that way. In the Bible, it's presented as dry land. Look up all the instances of earth where it speaks about it. It's called it's dry land over and over and over and over and over. You'll find over in the Psalms, David makes a distinction. He says, all the earth do this, and then all the sea. See, when he's speaking yeah. about the earth, he's just speaking about the land on the earth. That's the way I'm taking it. I know that's different the way most people take it, and but that's the way the Bible presents it. And so here, there was only water there. And here's all the angels, and, the, and of course, they're not fallen yet, in my view. There's nothing fallen. There's nothing evil. Everything's good. Everything's very good. And Genesis, uh, the whole chapter of Genesis 1. But here, the angels, which were created a day earlier, possibly two, but maybe at least one day earlier, they still, they were created with the instinct to know, just like Adam. 
Adam was created with an instinct that he is able to name all the animals shortly after he was created. So even though to us, you know, when a child has to grow and be years and years old before it can really function as a human being, that wasn't that way with Adam and apparently not that way with the angels. They were able to understand what was going on, the sons of God. They were able to understand what was going on and rejoiced when they saw the earth come out of the water. That's what Job 38 is saying to me. And as far as the sun and the moon, you'll notice how very peculiar it is the Lord speaks of that over there. And I deal with this in my cosmology book. It has more to do with that than with this, really. But he doesn't call them the sun and the earth. He calls them lights. They're not right. named until later. He never calls them the sun and the moon. There is a possibility, and I will concede, that the bodies of the sun and the moon could have been created earlier. But they did not become lights until the fourth day. Tim, thank you. Now, you are now a gap theorist. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, man. Because um, I don't see any need for a gap. There's absolutely no gap whatsoever. I, well, there's no need. I, I still, I really, I've listened to you. I had don't understand why you need one unless you want to use it to account for the geological ages. No, I don't care about that. I, I think the biggest, to me, there's, there's two big reasons. One is uh, each day that's actually mentioned for the creation days uh, doesn't start till verse three. I think that's pretty demonstrable. Um, I, and then two, I think that you've got to account um, even for the ancient Hebrew historical interpretation of what Genesis 1, 1 through 1, 3, why it was handled so, um, so carefully, especially when it, when it came to allowing the young men um, in the Hebrew culture to uh, provide an interpretation for those verses. They weren't allowed to even touch it and interpret it, interpret it until they were at least 30 years old. Um, and, and it's because there was such complexity with it. And, and, and you can, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the, the ancient Hebrew culture believed there is a gap. Um, and, and I mentioned that. I mentioned the early church fathers who support it. Um, I, I meant, obviously, it was popularized in the 1800s, which you, you brought up. Um, but I don't think they're vague references. I think it's pretty, um, pretty particular references to some sort of judgment and destruction that occurred there. So there's, there's a lot of reasons why I do hold to it. Um, and, and one of those, I think I, we could transition to this and then wrap it up. We're at about an hour and 45 minutes now, uh, which is good, man. I love it. I love talking to you about this stuff. And, um, you know, maybe it'll, it'll uh, kind of spark some thought and conversation for those of you who are either watching or listening. Um, and if you have questions for Tim, I'm sure you can reach out to him um, at preservedwords.com. He's got a contact page. You can, re I, unless you don't want people to contact you on this, I don't know, but he's got a book that he wrote on it. So you can, you can have access to that book on the gap theory. And he really breaks it down and gets more specific with, with the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, and, uh, that's good. If you have questions for me, you can email me, uh, write me, leave me a voicemail, all those good things. But the last thing I want to wrap up with, and, and this would be a good one. You, you touched on it. You didn't really go into detail. I touched on it. I didn't really go into detail in both of our openings on on that word replenish in uh, verse 28, chapter 1, verse 28 of Genesis. And uh, to me, I'll just give you my brief uh, argument on this. I know that you, you say it's an old English word, and there's no doubt that it is. It's an old English word, replenish. You you take it to mean to fill, and uh, or to fill again. 
not to fill again. Uh, you take it to fill or um, to plenish as opposed to replenish and to refill. Um, but to me, it, it just seems like if the translators of the King James Version should have used a, a word that wasn't archaic and didn't have the, the meaning that it does today, um, then, then they could have done that because they used that same word in Genesis 9-1 um, to describe a replenishing the earth after a, a judgment destruction. And uh, they, in fact, used the exact words that you say they should have used um, in chapter 1, verse 22, when the same exact commission is given to animals as opposed to humans. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It doesn't say replenish. It doesn't say refill, but it says fill, which is what you're saying the Old English word should be to say be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth as opposed to refilling it again. So um, I think if they if they wanted to use that phraseology that they could have because they actually did um, uh, just six verses prior to using that word replenish. Uh, and, 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 but that's my take. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm not, I'm not super dogmatic about it, but that's the way I see it. So what's your take on it, Tim? Okay, replenish. That one is a, that's a, a doozy, so to speak, because we know what the word means today. Replenish means to refill. It means to, uh, if you're going to, uh, you have a cup of water and you drank it and you want to get some more water, you replenish your cup with water. That's the way we understand the term. But that's not always what it meant. And any good dictionary will tell you that. You'll find back in the uh, Webster's 1828, Webster's 1913 dictionary, all of the, the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, all of those will tell you that the word originally meant just to fill. And you, you spoke about the other versions. I'll tell you why the King James translators used the word replenish. Wycliffe used the word fill. And this is in Genesis 1.28, you know, where it says replenish the earth about uh, Adam and Eve. Wycliffe, Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthews, and even the Geneva Bible of 1560, which was one that immediately preceded the King James Bible, all used the word fill in that verse. But then in 1568, the Bishop's Bible used the word replenish. Now they used the word replenish because that was becoming, that it's a, it's a newer word. Fill is a much older word than replenish. Replenish was getting to be a common word at that time. And you'll see that the Bishop's Bible used it, and the directive given by King James to the King James translator was to use the Bishop's Bible as much as possible, as much as the original languages would permit. So what do they do? Replenish means to fill. And so they use replenish because that was what the Bishop's Bible said. Also, the Great Bible uses it. But, uh, but that... That there does not prove anything biblically. That proves the etymology of the word, you know, proves the definition of the word at the time, which you can look at uh, other works of that time period, how they use the, the word replenish, and it means to fill. But the best way to define it is, of course, let the Bible define it and go to Genesis chapter 9, and we'll let the Bible define it. Now, a lot of Bible believers will go to Genesis 9, and they'll They'll see in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. They'll say, Aha! They say, Look, he says here to replenish the earth. Well, back in Genesis 1, he told Adam and Eve to replenish the earth. 
So we know that since there was already people that lived on the earth and were destroyed during the flood, and Noah is supposed to replenish the earth, he's using it in, in the sense that we use it today, to refill the earth. But no, that won't work. It's like when you go and put gas in your car, you're going to fill your car up with gas. Does that mean that's the first time you filled it up? No, it's just the way you, you use language. You may have filled it up a hundred times before, or you may have just bought the car and it might be the first time you filled it up. You can still use the word fill in the same definition, the same way. In either scenario, whether it's the first time or the 50th time, you can still use the word fill. But now, here's the key. Uh, most Bible believers will say, let the Bible define itself. And they'll, they'll do it many times, and it's the right way to do it. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Now, before I get to the next uh, part of this, just let me mention the R-E prefix. Re. You know, re. People say re, demand something, be again. You know, you you reapply, you uh, refill, you reset. That means again, again. Well, but it doesn't always mean again. The R-E prefix has three meanings. One of them is, of course, to do something again. The second one is to go backwards, like retreat. And the third one is an intensification of the base word. That means to do something fully or completely or abundantly. And that is how the R-E prefix is used in the word replenish. It means to fill the world, the earth, abundantly. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Simple. I read you verse 1. Now go down and look at verse 7. And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply, and bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. There is the Bible in the clearest way possible, defining its own terms and telling you exactly what the word replenish means. In verse 1, he says, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. In verse 7, be fruitful, multiply, and bring forth abundantly in the earth. And so replenish in the King James Bible is exactly as the old dictionaries define it. It just means to fill. And in, you can't read anything into Genesis 1.28 and try to make that refer to a previous existence. And one other thing, some people don't think this all the way through. They'll say replenish means to refill the earth. Well, when you refill something, you refill it with the same thing that was in it before. And if you do that, if Genesis 1.28 meant you refill it with the same thing that was in it before, that would require that there were men on the earth before. And most gap theorists today will not there's a few that will. Dake and others will say that men lived back before, you know, the previous of the gap. But most say, no, there were no men because Adam was the first man. The only thing that lived back previous to the gap were cherubs and angels and possibly other things, but not men. So see, there's another flaw with their use of replenish. Even if it was replenished, it couldn't have been replenished with the same thing that was there before. All right. I see. Um, I'm trying to look up here. We've got, I've got a bunch of different, um, or a few different groups that I posted it in, in Facebook for creation and evolution and, and uh, the age of the earth, young earth creationism, old earth creation, different groups like that. 
for whatever reason, I need to figure out what, why this is happening, but um, the program that I use that's supposed to be a super chat program that allows me to see all the different comments that come in for any live stream that we've got, it doesn't show those messages that come in through the groups on eat on the video itself. So we've got a lot more comments um, from different groups. It's just they're not showing up in the in the chat, so I can't put them online. And I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to to pull those up for our time to close it out. But anyways, why don't we take? We'll just go to our closing statements. Do three to five minutes each, and kind of sum up what our position is, why you believe it, and. Uh, then wrap it up from there if you want. That's you, that's fine. Sure. Cool. Um, well, how about I go first? Then I'll go to you. You can have the last word and uh, see if any anybody types any questions in the chat box between now and then and go from there. So, okay. So um, let me put the camera back on myself. Guys, I think it's pretty clear. I do believe in the gap theory. I think there's uh, ample evidence to support that. I think that a lot of the things we've actually, we've we've talked about and articulated as some of the reasons why I would believe that. Um, and and Tim uh, essentially said that I haven't provided enough of a reason for him to believe there's there's a gap theory. Um, but I, I do think that there's a, 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 a really big problem um, that, that Tim has kind of addressed, um, but has had to address from the same methods that he's, he's using against the gap theory uh, to say that it's not an explicit doctrine and that's to say when Lucifer and the angels were created. So it's an implicit doctrine on his, his, his perspective. It's an implicit doctrine on our perspective. And ultimately what it comes down to is uh, when do you believe they were created and did it have an impact on whether or not God created the earth without form and void um, in, in a state of destructive desolation that, that God wouldn't create anything? Would God actually create anything formless and void? Um, everything else that... Uh, Tim and I had talked about, we pretty much agreed on as far as what actually happens during the six days of creation. Um, we do believe that all of the material um, that was used during those creation events was already there. He used the illustration of cake, he used the illustration of, of uh, building a house um, and different, different things like that. You use what's already there and you form it into what it, it becomes and then it was good. Um, I, I think that I've pretty much addressed all the points that, that Tim has brought up. Um, I still think that the, the number one reason why I believe in the gap theory, and I think it's, there's good reason to believe in the gap theory, um, is the aspect of verse 3 being the first day of the day one of creation. Um, I, I think that there's, there's absolutely, without a doubt, historic support. There's grammatical support um, from the hermeneutic and uh, expositional style of actually reading the text. I think you can look at how the Hebrews handled the text. I think you can look at how the early church fathers handled the text and uh, what the historic value is in, in coming to the conclusion that, yeah, historically, this position is pretty relevant. Um, the, the age of the earth being said to be 6,000 years old didn't come up until a couple of years before Usher, and Usher wasn't even the first one to come up with the 6,000-year um, age of the earth theory. Uh, another guy did before him, and he said it was about... 5,870-some years uh, old, and then Usher said, no, it, it, it was actually formed about um, 4,004 B.C., and then that guy changed his his definition of it and said, yeah, it was definitely formed in 4,004 B.C., uh, but he narrowed it down to October 23rd at, at 6 p.m., so 
he got a little more narrow than Usher did even, um, just to kind of one-up him. But up until that point, I think historically, um, you know, the six-day creation event, everyone believes that that was a, a literal 24-hour period of six consecutive days. Um, the only difference is the, the gap position and the position that I hold is uh, something happened before those six days in order for it to need to be reformed. And if, if we're going to take it consistently with what, what even Tim has said, um, all of that stuff was already there based off of verse 1. So really what it comes down to is, does what we see in the natural world um, actually line up with what the Bible teaches? And I would say that it does. I think the earth is very old. I think the universe is very old. And I think that the creation of um, the devil and his angels happened a long time ago. And it caused a state of chaos and confusion and disorder that God never intended. And he's been working to re restore it, um, which is the account that you see in Genesis 1 following verse 2. So that would be my position, um, kind of in a summary. Tim, I'll turn it over to you and put the camera on you so you can wrap it up on, on your point. All right. Well, thank you, brother, for giving me this time to talk about the gap theory. Like I've said before, it's not something that I really considered a whole lot until people started taking it too serious, I think, and making claims for it that they couldn't prove. I've, uh, I've yet to see any, I've not seen any reason for the gap because there's explanations for everything that they propose. I mean, like you mentioned about the fall of Lucifer, there are those that say that have also counted and said that there could be as many as 100 to 150 years between the creation and the fall. How, how they do that, I'm not sure, but we don't know that it wasn't. We know that it wasn't a great long period of time, but 100 years or even 50 years or even 10 years or five years, is you can get a lot of things can happen within just a few years. So there's time and room there for the fall. And, and here's another interesting little tidbit I'll throw in there. You know how I mentioned at the first about how the Garden of Eden was uh, needed to be dressed? And you can find over in Ezekiel 28 where it speaks about Lucifer, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Oh, you put those two things together. Maybe the reason it needed to be dressed is because Lucifer was in there and messed it up. See, it doesn't say that specifically, but it's a possibility. See, that's an inferred or implicit and inferred doctrine. And I can't prove it. No one can prove it. But when you put the Eden together, you put Lucifer together, you put all that together, Maybe Adam had to dress it and fix it up because it got messed up. That could have happened in a hundred year period with between the creation when everything was good and the fall when everything turned bad. There was kind of a little innocent period there. And that's why Larkin, Schofield, all that called it that the dispensation of innocence. But as for the ancient Hebrews and all of those that, that believe that and said that they believe that, Maybe they did. Maybe they believed there was a gap there, but it didn't have all the connotations that it has now. I've read a little bit about that and all the about the fall of Lucifer in there and all of that. I don't believe they held to that part. They just held that there there could be a gap there or there is a gap happened is more recent. The fall of Lucifer being in the gap, from what I understand, if someone has got any uh, evidence contrary is happened within the last 150 years. That was put in there like with Pember and Schofield and Lark. So that is very recent. The gap itself, just the gap with nothing happening, may be older. 
But the gap that we, as we know it today, is is very recent as far as uh, biblical time goes. Anyway, I'll sum up, and I'll just state this: if Genesis one verse two raises a question, well, then someone ought to look elsewhere in the Bible, in the Scriptures, for an in-context answer that answers those questions. And I believe there are three verses that do that. I've already mentioned some of them, like we looked at Nehemiah 9.6. That really gives a, some gap believers a hard time because it speaks about the order of creation and it uses the word made instead of create. It speaks about the third heaven. It speaks about the angels. Well, I mentioned that before, but that's not one of them. One of them is in Exodus 20, verse 11. It says, for in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. See, there's the word made. And the way they'll try to get around that is say, well, it says made, not created. But a lot of times those words are used interchangeably, just like they are in Nehemiah 9, 6. Go over there and look at it again. Read it over and over and over. The word there is made. Look at another one. This one's in the New Testament. The Lord says a very significant thing. He said when speaking about Adam and Eve, he said in Mark 10, verse 6, he said, but from the beginning of, the cre- of creation... God made them male and female. Now, that verse says a lot. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Well, where do you find the beginning? You find the beginning in Genesis 1.1. As I said before, I believe that is a summary statement or actually an introductory statement. Nothing happened there. It's just God saying what he was going to do. I believe Genesis 1.2 is actually the first the beginning of day one. I believe on day one, the Lord spoke the physical reality into existence. Poof, there it is. And it was without form and void. And then he started with verse three, where he started speaking is when he started forming. See, forming, the forming and the creating do not necessarily have to be the same thing. He started forming in verse three. He created the physical reality in the water in verse two. Before that, there was nothing but him. In verse 1, there was nothing but him. But see, there it says in Mark 10, 6, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Well, God calls that whole chapter then the beginning. The beginning is not something distinct or separated from the rest of the chapter. The beginning is part of the chapter. And because when he created Adam and Eve, he calls that the beginning of the creation of God. And the last verse, verse Revelation 21.1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Notice how it says that it's called the first heaven and the first earth. That's the one which we're on now. It doesn't leave any room for a previous earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away. That's now. You can't Unless that statement is not true, there there was a previous earth. No, there was a previous earth. This is the first earth. So these verses are clear. These are very plain, clear, explicit verses. And the the gap believers, the gap theorists can't accept them as they stand. I have heard arguments, all kinds of arguments to explain away every one of them. But verses that simple do not need to be explained away. Verses that simple just need to be believed. They just need to be believed. 
They speak on their own. All right, brother, I've had a good time. It's I'm getting a little hoarse. <laughs> but, <laughs> We've been going for but, two uh, hours, man. Hey, this has been fun. Thanks I've, again uh, for coming on. Hey, and if you would, tell uh, tell our viewers and our listeners how they can find you on your website and uh, how they can find your Bible software program. Um, I've already had a couple of people uh, who have messaged me and asked, hey, at the very beginning, you had your software up and they said, hey, what is that? How do I get a hold of it? So if you could just let us know one more time. Guy, it's Bible, it's BibleAnalyzer.com. Just uh, as it sounds, B-I-B-L-E-A-N-A-L-Y-Z-E-R.com. And you'll come to the page. There'll be a button to go click to go to the download page. You can download it for Windows, Mac, or Linux and install it on your computer. And it has a built-in download manager. Just go to the top in the menu where it says modules. Click that and open the download manager. And you'll see a whole page full of free titles you can download immediately. And another whole page of of uh, premium titles, we call them, that are, uh, most of them are just two or three dollars. I mean, they, yeah. there's only a couple of them really expensive, and I have to, that's because I've got an agreement with the copyright holder, and, you know, they demand that I charge this month, you know, this much. I, if it was me, I'd give it away, but yeah. it's not them. They demand I do it, so I have to to offer it, but there it is, BibleAnalyzer.com. For the, the uh, my other stuff, like the Gap book, cosmology book, and a whole bunch of other things, a book on the King James Bible, a book on different stuff like that. It's preservedwords.com, preservedwords with an S.com. All right. Hey, that'll work. Thanks again for coming on. I'm going to cut over to our closing scene. It, we've got a bunch of questions that have come in. Uh, most of them came in throughout the actual um, the actual live stream. So um, we actually have covered every every question that came in, whether it, typically it was re, um, um, talking about replenish, uh, Noah, Adam, it was talking about light and darkness. It, it seems like most people uh, reject the gap theory. There's some people who do do accept the gap theory, but um, that's all right. I'll have a little grace with the majority of people. That's okay. But anyways, thanks again, <laughs> Tim Morton. It's been a pleasure and honor. It's been a good time having you on. I'm going to cut to my closing scene and tell you guys a little bit about what to expect coming up here shortly on Talking Christianity Apologetics. Um, get excited because, uh, you know, on this show, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, basically three main areas. We talk about the atonement. Uh, we talk about textual criticism. And uh, uh, what else do we talk about? We talk about apologetics. Um, recently, we've been getting into some more apologetic style um, uh, conversations. In fact, we just did a debate with a, a self-identifying agnostic atheist. If you have not had a chance to check that video out, uh, please do so. We debated the topic on whether or not God exists and uh, talked about the cosmological argument. Um, so it, it's good. We're, we're getting into some really interesting things coming up here uh, with the extent of the atonement. In fact, uh, we're going to do at least a five-part series with uh, Scott Smith. He did a, a dissertation on the extent of the atonement for his PhD, and uh, we'll be spending a, a, a good amount of time talking about his view of the atonement and, and term he has coined, pononosticism. Uh, it's going to be really interesting. I think uh, it will challenge a lot of you guys in, in ways you may not have been challenged previously. So be sure and catch that as it comes out. I'll be... Uh, I'll, uh, I'll keep you tuned on when we're going to have a release date for that. So once again, uh, feel free to share, share these videos. Um, 
and subscribe, like, review us, all of that good stuff. You can donate, you can leave us voicemails, and uh, we'll use it, man. So, anyways, I hope it's a blessing to you. Thanks again. God bless. If you have any questions for, for Tim Morton, uh, you can either reach out to myself or him. So, we'll talk to you later. Have a good night.